With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. It's me, Andrew Musgrove. And it's me, John Gibson. Welcome to another episode of Gibbo's Corner. Sit back and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Gibbo's Corner. I'm Andrew Musgrove and as usual joined by John Gibson, a Chronicle journalist veteran. How are we doing, John? We're good, we're good. Still hanging in there, Andrew. We've just been talking there about current day Newcastle United and the frustration that the Newcastle United takeover is dragging on. World Trade Organization report isn't going to be out for a few weeks and there doesn't seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel regarding the decision. And we said we're going to bring our listeners some joy, some happy memories looking down memory lane. And we've we've gone into the archive and we had a bit of a chat about who we're, who we're going to pick. And we've come up with a name who maybe doesn't, doesn't get enough credit for what he did at Newcastle. Um, you know, one of the longest serving servants at the club. And it's going to be a, quite an interesting hour or so to dive back into in his career at the club. Yeah, I think uh, we're talking here Willie McFall, who is, is quite unique to Newcastle United because he served the club for 22 years, uninterrupted, no breaks in the thing, going from being a player to junior coach, reserve team coach, first team coach, and then first team manager. Uh, and it's unique because other people have done uh, long spells at Newcastle. You've got Joe Harvey and Kevin Keegan, who were both players with Newcastle and then became managers, but they had a break in between uh, where they went off and did other things. You had Beardsley had a, a long time in Newcastle, but it was, again, it was just as a player and broken up twice. This guy served non-stop for 22 years, and that's quite an achievement in anybody's book. Indeed. Obviously, a goalkeeper who was very talented. And that's where we'll start, with, with that talent and what mm. made him such a good goalkeeper. Because to to hold that position for as long as he did and to be held in such high regard, not just as a club footballer, but at an international level, a lot of people often say, you know, if it wasn't for Pat Jennings, he would have had a lot more international caps for Northern Ireland. Without question, without question. I mean, an interesting guy, uh, christened William, of course, but was never ever called that. Funny enough, when he joined Newcastle, he was called Iam. The, the last three letters of William, I-A-M, Iam. And, of course, we ended up calling him Willie and he become known as Willie McFall. But he was Iam McFall when he first came across. And ironically, as a kid, you know, he was a right half at school. And when he was asked to play in goal, didn't like it. Mind you, after he's capped at junior and youth level uh, as a kid by Ireland, he suddenly thought it wasn't such a bad position after all. Um, inevitably, isn't it always the same with Newcastle? You know, we, we talk about Shearer who, uh, and Beardsley, who had trials at Newcastle, weren't taken on, 
sent away and then came back and become stars. What people don't realise is that that actually happened to Willie McFall as well. He come across from Ireland for a trial at Newcastle in the days of Charlie Mitten, when Charlie Mitten was manager, and he was sent home. He was sent home, thanks very much, no thanks, we don't think we want you. Uh, ended up coming back for 22 years and, and playing 355 games, but uh, initially we sent him home. Um, and, of course, in those days in Ireland, uh, it was part-time football. He played for Colwane and then for the big club in, in Northern Ireland, which is Linkfield, but he was a joiner. Uh, and he was fitting in his football in a part-time capacity. But at Linfield, uh, he won the league, he won the cup, he played in Europe with them in the early 60s, so his potential was there. But amazingly, uh, the way he came to Newcastle, Andrew, is because they saw him in two games in which his team lost, and yet we still signed him. He played against Newcastle in September 1966 in a friendly match, in, in seven goals. Um, Linfield got beat, what, 7-1? Uh, and Joe said he had a blinder. I don't, I don't know whether he, Joe actually meant he was blind or he had a blinder, but uh, yeah. Yeah, there's not many people have let in seven goals and been actually signed by the club that he was playing against. But uh, he was an outstanding shot stopper. And, of course, the interesting thing at that time as well England, as we all remember, Andrew, had just won the World Cup, famously, 1966. And the first game after winning the World Cup was a home international against Northern Ireland in Belfast. Um, and just after, immediately after half-time, Pat Jennings turned his ankle and was injured and had to go off. And Willie McFall went there as one of the subs on the bench, went and goal for the whole of the second half. Uh, Northern Ireland lost 2-0. Willie only let in one of the goals, but again, he was outstanding. And um, he came to Newcastle. Not young. I mean, he was 23-year-old uh, when he arrived here. He wasn't a bairn. He wasn't a kid. Um, and, you know, you said that uh, he didn't get the international caps he deserved, and that is absolutely true. He actually ended up only six caps, but he was 40 times on the bench. Being a, being a goalkeeper, he didn't get on tactically, of course he didn't, but he sat 40 times on the bench, only got six caps. The amazing thing about him, really, was that when we think of goalkeepers these days, and even back then... We think of big guys, you know, and most managers like their goalkeepers to be over six foot, so they can dominate the box, high balls, cut people out. He was only five foot nine and a half. He wasn't tall for a goalkeeper, and he very much represented the type of goalkeeper that Ronnie Simpson had been at Newcastle, uh, who, as you know, went on and won the European Cup with Celtic and did get Scotland caps. So he, he, he was a different type of player. Uh, and it took him a little while to establish himself a couple of seasons at Newcastle because Gordon Marshall was the goalkeeper at Newcastle when Willie McFall first come. But... Um, once he got into the side, he wasn't to be moved. And over the first three seasons, Newcastle were in Europe for the first time in their history. The very first season, of course, they won the European Fairs Cup. But over three seasons, when they never got knocked out on aggregate, 
They won it the first season, and the second and third season they got knocked out on away goals and um, penalty shootout. And he played in every single game. He played 20 in three seasons. He played 24 consecutive European games for Newcastle, which is quite an outstanding record. Um, and he was Harvey's number one keeper during the nine years Harvey was here, which was very successful for Newcastle. They won the first cup in 1969. They won the Texaco Cup twice, which is the Anglo-Scottish Cup between the, the, the clubs of those two countries. Um, he, he won the Anglo-Italian Cup and he got to the FA Cup final. So it was a very, very successful period for Newcastle and McFall was our keeper throughout that period. You mentioned there that it took a couple of years for him to, to get the number one spot. Gordon Marshall, obviously a very good goalkeeper. Was mm. he signed as someone who would come in to replace Gordon Marshall? Was he signed as an understudy? What was... What, what think, do you think, uh, Joe? Yeah, Joe, Joe was realising that Gordon Marshall wasn't getting any younger um, and Marshall had been around for a little while and been a goalkeeper in, in the early Harvey side. And Joe knew that that was coming to an end and he wanted a young man groomed into Newcastle uh, who would eventually uh, and relatively quickly take over from Gordon. And I always remember when I talked to Bob Paisley, you know, when he was so successful at Liverpool, he always said, we don't buy players and put them straight into our first team. We buy players for tomorrow and they're groomed in the Liverpool way in the reserve side for a season, season and a half before they go into the league side. And when Terry McDermott left Newcastle from our 74 Cup team, FA Cup team, he spent a year and a half, people don't realise, in the Liverpool reserve side before he came through and, and did the business for Liverpool. And it was the same here with Willie. But um, once Willie got into the team, he very quickly made certain that there wasn't going to be another goalkeeper that was going to be used by Joe. And right away through, ironically, Willie's career as a player only ended when Joe Harvey's career as a manager ended. When Joe left after the 74 Cup final, Willie retired and become uh, a coach. But he, um, he had some outstanding times uh, which I was lucky enough to see because it, in those days I was travelling with Newcastle United full-time. And there was three games for me that epitomised everything that Willie McFall was about. Um, and they were the semi-final of the first Cup winning season, the final of the first Cup and the semi-final of the FA Cup in '74. The semi-final of the first cup, you may well remember, uh, I'm thinking of the first leg war playing Glasgow Rangers, which was a huge, huge game. They were a big, powerful side winning in Europe in those days. Uh, the first leg was up there. There was a massive crowd. There was 75,580 in iBooks for, for that game, including 12,000 Geordies, which was some away following. 12,000. Uh, Newcastle weren't at the strongest. Uh, we lost Ollie Burton, the centre-half, just before the game when uh, he was involved with Dave Elliott. You might remember Dave Elliott, who was the, one of the subs, had a fit out in the street in Glasgow um, and 
Ollie Burton was with him and he was so traumatised, Joe said, we're not going to risk him. This has happened before and we risked him and we got tonked down at uh, Spurs. So he played John McNamee. John Craggs was right back because uh, Craig was injured. So the back four, which was Newcastle's great strength, two of the four were missing in front of McFall. And it was Rangers at Rangers. And as early as the 34th minute, we give away a penalty, which if you think the gates, if the gate had opened then, the floodgate had opened then after just half an hour, what might have happened in that first leg? The time might have got away from Newcastle completely. Um, ironically, uh, the, the whole thing, the whole flashpoint, 34 minutes, was A, it was Willie McFall that gave away the penalty, and B, it was somebody from his own city of Glasgow who actually awarded the penalty, although Newcastle thought it was harsh. The referee, Jack Adair, was a Belfast shipyard worker. And um, what happened, there was a, a, a Swedish inside forward Rangers had called Person, who was built like a, a rugby league forward, and Willie was built like a toothpick. Uh, he was a slim and smallish for a goalkeeper. And uh, through ball, Mer persons diving into the box, full of power. Willie comes out. The, four, the clash, both go to the deck. Referee says it was deliberate on McFall's side. McFall swears it wasn't. Uh, there was just a, a natural collision. Didn't matter. The penalty was awarded. The interesting thing then was that dear old person needed... Um, needed uh, to get a, a wet towel around his head to bring him to. So while he's getting water splashed on him, Dave Smith, the Newcastle coach, hurriedly gets a message onto the pitch. He's going crackers. John Craggs is standing just in front of him on the pitch and he tells Craggs, tell Willie McFall that uh, the, the penalty that uh, will be taken, uh, Lord Westwood had seen the previous penalty taken by um, Rangers and they took it and it was taken by a guy called uh, Greg, John Greg, and it, he placed it to the keeper's right. And so the message was sent on to Willie McFall, dive right, dive right, Greg will, will hit it to your right. So Willie stands up, stands on his line, and Andy Penman comes up to take the penalty, not John Greg. Uh, and he says, at that time, I almost collapsed, like seeing this guy come up. It was too late to change my mind. I dived right, and it was a magnificent one-handed save just inside the post. Uh, and he saved the penalty. We got a note-note draw, and it was all set up for Newcastle to win the second leg. But without the influence of McFall in that game, um, Newcastle might well not have progressed. Of course, in the second leg, big flashpoint riot and what have you and we'll get on to that in just a moment yeah I just want to talk about the you know obviously the, the kind of the first cup was probably the pinnacle because of obviously lifting a european trophy the last trophy to be lifted um yeah. by Newcastle. Yeah. but first off coming from linfield like we say a, a big club but moving to, to newcastle yes do you think do you think jackie milburn had, would have had a word there maybe and just told them about the difference oh, yes. because obviously um, Milburn went the other way. 
Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I know. I mean, uh, Jackie Milburn was a, he might have been a legend here, but he was a legend in Linfield because of what he did when he went over there after Newcastle United. Um, and Jackie took that upon himself. He was absolutely brilliant at uh, looking after new signings into Newcastle United. He did the same with Supermac when he came a couple of years later. Um, just to make the guy feel at home. And it was a huge step for Willie McFall. We've got to remember that. He was a joiner. However big Linfield are in Northern Ireland, they were still part-time. And this was a joiner and a part-time footballer coming to play at Newcastle United uh, for a club which was to go on and play such huge games as all the European games over three seasons, not one, because he went on to play in the Milan and all these sides in the following seasons, and the FA Cup final at Wembley. So it, it was absolutely massive for Willie. Um, and would he have the temperament? Would he be bullied because of his, his lack of inches and lack of weight, if you like? There was all those possibilities, but it, it didn't happen. I mean... He often told me what you were saying about the second leg when we, it was as he walks on the field that, that got us to the second leg in good shape. And of course, we went 2 0 up, as you know, in the second leg. Ironically, two jocks scored against Rangers to put their bait up, which was Jim Scott and Jackie Sinclair. And then, as you have mentioned, we had the riot. And the funny thing is, the riot started in the Gallagher end, which was housing all the Glasgow Rangers fans, who had been um, supping all day long and unbelievably in those days could take the booze onto the terraces. So they all had the bottles of brown ale, which they'd bought in town in Newcastle, and all had them on the terraces, swigging them while they were watching the game. And, of course, once Rangers were going to lose and they weren't expected to, uh, over the two legs, once it was obvious they were going to be out, the fans rioted. And Willie says he was standing on his goal line watching Newcastle attack at the other end of the field when suddenly he heard ping, 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 and it was four, five, eight, ten brown ale bottles flashing past his ear, being thrown onto the pitch by uh, the Rangers fans. And he said it's the fastest he's ever moved in his life. He, he said I out-sprinted the centre-half who thought I was an overlapping goalkeeper because he took off like a bat out of hell down the pitch to get out of the way of these, um, these uh, missiles that were being thrown at him. And I always remember the, an incredible picture. When we got started again after, what, 15, 17 minutes, whatever it was, the referee was determined not to call the game off. Um, and he took them back on. And there was this incredible picture of Willie McFall, once the game was restarted, watching play in a crouched position on his goal line and on his left-hand post, three-quarters of the way up, were all the piles of empty bottles that had been collected by the Newcastle Browns. He, he could have taken that to the bottle shop and got and got a bit of money, couldn't he, afterwards? Well, I, I think that he was a bit slow there. I think that he... <laughs> because the money they were getting in those days wasn't great. He could have easily done that. But I, well, I remember speaking to Frank Clark last year about the Fairs Cup, obviously, big anniversary. And he yeah. said that uh, while... Willie McFall began sprinting. He realised that he left his gloves. He did, yes. In the goal, and he turned yeah. around, and, and and Frank Clark grabs and says, "No, no, I'll buy you some new ones. We're getting off this <laughs> this pitch." Just <laughs> bizarre. But what I 
what we mentioned there, Frank Clark, we've mentioned, obviously, the manager was Joe Harvey, a big character. You had mm. other huge characters, not just in that Fairs Cup side, but throughout his time at Newcastle, you know, Terry yeah. Hibbert, Tony Green, uh, Malcolm McDonald, Bob Moncur. Yeah. What kind of character was William McFaul like? Because I think, I, I don't know him, I wasn't around when he was managing Newcastle United, but from what I read and stuff, it, it didn't strike me as the most kind of tough character or um, forthcoming no. character. Am I wrong in saying that? Put... No, no, I, th- I think you're pretty well right. Um, I mean, he was very much part of the team of players uh, who had a great influence at the time. He was part of the clique that was Monker, Clark, Craig, himself, Pop Robson. They used to knock about together. Um, and he was a straight bat and pad guy, is the best way to call him. He wasn't he wasn't a, a playboy like Jim, Jinky Smith. He wasn't a swaggerer uh, with a cigar and a, and a pint in his hand of champagne. He isn't that like Supermark. Uh, he wasn't that sort of guy. He he very much played it by the rules. He very much trained by the rules, and you could um, rely upon him to do the right thing for himself and therefore for the club. So and and as a manager, he he he, he was. Not at all the wild, he wasn't the wily type like uh, Charlie Mitten or the extrovert type like Kevin Keegan. Um, he, he, he was very much what you would say is a very good, solid, reliable in capital letters pro. Um, and he did that job very, very well for Newcastle throughout 22 years. And having got us through this semi-final through um, his penalty save uh, he produced another outstanding performance in the final uh, not the first leg although he did well we won 3-0 but the second leg when we played out there because uh, quite frankly at half time out there I was sitting next to Len Shackleton and we looked at each other and said we've lost this um, because we well, we never got over the halfway line and they suddenly looked like the wonderful side everyone had told us they were. Uh, we were getting beat out there 2-0, but for Willie, it would have been 4-0, 5-0, and the tie would have been over. Willie kept us in the game uh, in that first half, and, of course, the second half was just miraculous, the way it was turned round. It was all turned round on one kick of the ball, which was the volley by uh, Monteur, that brought it right on the resumption, which brought us back to 2-1. But really, uh, it had gone from being 3-0 to 3-2. It was now 4-2. We had an away goal, and they just were like a pinprick. They just went. Uh, but that game, and the game I want to talk about in the semi-final of the FA Cup in 74, Willie McFall's two first-half performances in those two games was so outstanding that he single-handedly kept us afloat. It helped us to win the first cup with the second half, and Monker got all the headlines, and deservedly so, with a, with a hat-trick from Sweeper. But um, at Burnley, we were swamped uh, in the first half at Burnley in the FA Cup semi-final, Hillsborough, uh, nil-nil half-time, and Malcolm McDonald got the headlines with the two goals in the second half. But Malcolm said to me afterwards, he said, 
all right, I got the headlines, but I wasn't the super Mac. The super Mac was Mac Fall with his performance in the first half when he was absolutely outstanding. And those three games showed the worth of a goalkeeper and how he can turn a game. Um, and that was Rangers, Uspestosa and Burnley. But I think we know this season now that we talk about with Newcastle United fast forward, Martin Dubrovka uh, is a huge difference and has earned Newcastle numerous points uh, in this current season and has been, for me, by far an outstanding player this season. So we know a goalkeeper's worth in Newcastle. So what were... McFall's attributes because you mentioned Martin Dubravka there you know he's a very good yep. communicator he doesn't yes. hold back in organising defence I guess when you've got a defence made up of the likes of Frank Clark and Bob Moncay that I don't know does that was that communication as important because Bob's obviously a very yes. good communicator and Frank Clark knows what he's doing so yeah. first of all I say what was his attributes and how did they all fit in together well uh, I mean, you know, being very close off the pitch is a hell of a help. Um, and they were. Then socially, it was Moncur, Clark, Craig and Mark Fall, together with Pop from up front, who went out together with the wives from Eels, etc., etc. So they got on ever so well. You've still got to be, for all you've got Bob organising your back four and into positions and whatever, your goalkeeper's got to be verbal because he's got to be able to, to command his area, shouting, mind, getting defenders out the way when he comes to collect the ball. His greatest asset, without a shadow of doubt, though, was shot stopping, as it was with. Ronnie Simpson, he was very agile. Uh, some would say with both Simpson and McFall, you had to be a good shot stopper because if you're not bulky, if you're not big, if you're not six foot three and, and with muscles on muscle, then you, you've got to be a good shot stopper. Because you, and in a way, later on, bringing it up to date for more younger listeners to this, you, you would be talking about Shea Given uh, being a terrific shot stopper. Uh, and that's something that this guy was. And really, it's interesting because um, I always remember Bill Shankly has such a, a reputation in football for his knowledge and for what he created at Liverpool. And um, the next five years after we won the first cup, Bill Shankly said it was debatable if there was a better keeper in the country than Willie McFall, which is some compliment coming from somebody like Bill Frank. When you think that in that era, there was Gordon Banks, Ray Clemens, Peter Benetti, and Pat Jennings. Now, to be lumped in that with Shankly, suggesting that he is very comfortable in that company, he's literally said it's debatable if there's a better keeper in the country. That is some... Uh, accolade and people don't realise with Willie um, because he was with Newcastle not with Liverpool or Spurs like Jennings or uh, and uh, and because he only won six caps he's the most unfortunate man in the world to be in the area with with Pat Jennings a, a little bit to be truthful like when England had Shelton and Clements together and Ramsey did the unthinkable then uh, he he uh, alternated. He went through a period where he alternated his goalkeeper. 
he had, he, he had Shelton one week and then the, the next international Clemens and the next international Shelton. Um, if the Northern Ireland manager had done that with Pat Jens, well, Pat Jens would have walked out, of course, because he, he was one of the world's greatest that we've ever seen. Um, but he was unfortunate to have somebody like that. Without that, as I say, he was 40 times on the bench without getting on um, for Northern Ireland. Without that, he would have had a barrel load of caps. But... Um, he had a wonderful, wonderful career with Newcastle. And in the big time, you know, he was a one-club man because only he played part-time football in Northern Ireland, but his only big club was Newcastle United. He arrived here and is at 23. He retired as a player at 33, and the whole of that 10 years was spent in the Newcastle first team. 290 appearances, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what was his relationship then with Joe Harvey like? You know, obviously, he was his number one for a very long time. What mm. was that like, his manager and goalkeeper? What was their relationship like? Uh, excellent. Very, very good. Joe, Joe was a good man-manager. Um, if he waited, if he didn't wait, if he didn't touch, you weren't seen, you disappeared. You were out of the team and out of the club. Um, but he was a great man-manager in the... His wonderful strength was whatever type of personality you were, he could adopt to that and get the best out of you. Whether you were a big-time Charlie or a bit of an introvert, whether you needed a kiss or a smack on the back of the head, Joe was capable of producing any of those. And um, he realised what he'd got. And if, I mean, Joe was a right-half, but he was effectively, in those days, a right-half was a defender. Uh, so he knew that Newcastle had a ball at the back door if they were going to get any results. And he had a back four and a keeper behind him that he knew he could rely on. And as I say, the whole of Willie's career here was played under Joe Harvey, who never at any stage lost faith in Willie, which is why he played so many games for us, 355, once he, he got into the team. Um, and he never really looked... To replace him, um, we brought Mahoney towards the end, who um, came in and played in Mike Mahoney. Because, uh, again, when Willie's 33, Joe, etc., is realising that he's coming to the end in the way that Gordon Marshall was coming to the end. He brought Mike Mahoney up and he played in the 76 League Cup final. Um, but uh, I think that McFall learned an awful lot of his managerial um, nous from Joe. Yes, as a coach, he served under managers after Joe, um, and you're going to pick the good points out of those managers. You know, he served under Gordon Lee and, and Big Jack John, etc., etc. And yes, you're going to pick up this and that, but the majority of what he based uh, his managership on was... From Joe Harvey. And um, the interesting thing was that having finished playing, um, he then, and, and it was when Gordon Lee came in, and an awful lot was going to change when Gordon Lee came in, um, and he became a coach. But he became like the junior coach, and then um, with the junior team, and then with the reserves, and with the first team. And uh, I don't think it. At that time, he had any ambition to, to actually become manager. Um, 
Because as well, if you think about it, not many goalkeepers make managers. There's not many goalkeepers who have come on and been top, top managers. And I think he didn't really consider that. He considered that he, he loved football enough to want to stay in it. And he loved Newcastle United enough not to want to leave. But I don't think he was actually looking to be a manager. And it was only on the resignation of Big Jack Charlton, uh, which came in August of 1985 uh, and was somewhat unexpected because we played a pre-season friendly at St James's Park and there was under 10,000 at the game uh, and they, they heckled Big Jack because of the style Big Jack would play. You know, he was never going to be a Kevin Keegan. He was always going to be a guy. Let's keep it tight. Let's get the ball forward as quickly as we can and play off a big centre forward. So, um, and the fans didn't like that. He was heckled during that game. And at the end of the game, he just put his coat on, walked up to the, the chairman and said, uh, I'm not having this. I'm, I'm off on my toes. And he was gone. And this was in August with the season about to start. So what do you do? Uh, and they turned to Willie McFall who was there, Mr. Consistency, Mr. Dedicated to Newcastle United, and suddenly said, there you are, pal, it's your baby, you get on with it. And I remember phoning Willie up when it was announced that he got the job. I gave Willie a, a bell and he picked up the phone and he thought I was phoning to congratulate him, but I thought I'd have a bit of fun with him because I knew him very, very well. And I phoned him up and I said, hey, pal, just wanted to commiserate with you. He said, what's the matter like, Gibber? I said, well... To be truthful, you had a job for life here. You've been here 20 years and you had a job until the day you died. But you've just resigned now because every day now you're a step closer to the sack. Once you're the first team manager, you're going to get sacked because everybody gets sacked. Brian Clough got sacked uh, uh, by Leeds. Um, Wenger gets sacked. Everybody ends up getting sacked. And I said, so you're one step closer, mate, to the day you're going to leave Newcastle and be sacked. And he laughed because he knew I was taking the fun. But he said, Gibbo, how can you turn down? How can I turn down my club? I'm offered that to be manager of Newcastle United, the club I adore, the club I've been here 20 years. How, how can I say no? And he, he didn't say no. Uh, but, you know, it was a Looking back, it was a difficult time to become manager um, because we'd, we'd had the breakup of the, the Kevin Keegan promotion side when Kevin Keegan was a player. Uh, when Kevin Keegan went, when Arthur Cox went, when Terry McDermott went, immediately on promotion, we'd had one season of Jack Charlton, which had been very controversial, but the rot had already set in. Newcastle were about well, the three greatest Geordie assets ever to be with them at one time, which was uh, Waddle Beardsley and Gascoigne. Um, sacrilege, I, I shake now to think about it all these years later. You sell all them in about a couple of years or whatever. England players, Geordie England players, and you sell them all. Oh, you go down, what a surprise. Um, but the Waddle had already been sold by... Um, in Jack's reign, and so the other two guys are looking at the situation and think, well, what has gone, and he's our big hope, what chance have we got, how ambitious are Newcastle United, and of course, within a very short space of time, B 
Beardsley also went and Gascoigne also went. So it was a very difficult time to move in. But it's got to be said that, that when he did move in, um, he did exceptionally well initially with both Beardsley and Gascoigne. Because Beardsley, you may well remember, um, had hated the Jack Johnson regime because uh, the ball was played from back to front as quick as it was possible to do. Long ball, you get it, bang, up front, big centre forward, fights forward in the air, knockdown, play off the knockdown. It's very successful with smaller, small clubs in smaller sides, like um, the Republic of Ireland in the International World Cup scene. It's very successful. It's not the most endearing football to watch, and it's not the football Newcastle like. And of course, with Jack, we've had two hammer thrower centre forwards in Cunningham and Riley, and he played uh, Waddle and Beardsley wide, one on the right and one on the left. Well, Waddle put up with that. Beardsley hated it, and um, really, he was on the verge of walking out then when Jack walked out. Um, and because he would have gone, he would have gone that summer if Jack hadn't walked. But when Jack went, he actually signed because Willie was there and he said Willie was like a breath of fresh air. He signed a new two-year deal. Uh, he wasn't going to stay that long. But in Willie's first season um, as manager, Beardsley become a full England international for the first time. Uh, so a significant breakthrough was under Willie McFall. And the same with Gaza, because um, Gaza was the kid who had a couple of games as a sub under Big Jack, who, if you remember, the, the him story with Gaza was he was a little porky pig, of course. Uh, he was a little porky pig who could play, but he was still a little porky pig. And the reason for that was he was whacking um, Mars bars down his neck at a rapid rate of knots. And... Um, Jack had him in and said, listen, mate, if you don't lose two stone in two weeks, or the, the bulk of two stone, you're out this club. Uh, and suddenly the little porky pig suddenly decided, oh dear me, you've got to do something about it. But he'd only, he only played two or three sub games uh, under Jack. But the following season, um, uh, McFall's first match in charge as a manager at Southampton, the start of 85-86. He put Gascoigne in the team for his, his debut as a starter in the side. He put Gascoigne in the side. A big, big thing to do to make a kid, however talented, the, the, the centrepiece of your team in, in, in midfield. And that season, he played, never having started a game for Newcastle, Gascoigne played 28 games and scored nine goals in that first season with McFall. And, um, you know, it, it was a major breakthrough for Beardsley in terms of becoming a full England international and Gaza in becoming a top-flight footballer when nothing but a Ben. Uh, so that both happened in Willie's first season. So given that, um, obviously, Willie McFall was a coach before he took the manager's job, Mm. He'd been in and around the club for so long. You know, the likes of Beardsley, who were homegrown anyway. I know Beardsley had gone away and he'd come back, but yeah, yeah, he would have been yeah. aware of Willie McFall, you know, of would have grown up watching him. Um, so was there a few players in the dressing room who were quite happy to see 
to see William McFall getting the chance at, at the big job? Oh, I think without a shadow of a doubt, because he had been uh, around the place forever in a day. And he was a very different sort of personality to Jack. Jack was very abrasive and in your face and you, you did what he told you to do, whether it was right or wrong, where Willie was much more persuasive, much more apparently easygoing, etc., etc. But, you know, all players love coaches, don't they? All players, as a sweeping generalisation, love coaches because coaches aren't the guys. Coaches are the ones that pick up the pieces when you've had a bad game, when your coaches are on the pat you on the back, give you a kiss, pick up the pieces. The managers do the hard things. The coaches give you a kiss and the manager drops you. So uh, it's the manager that gets the brunt of being disliked. And so, I mean, everybody wanted Dickie Dennis to become manager when um, players I'm talking about, when, uh, when Gordon Lee left and they got... Dickie Dennis a job and it was an absolute disaster so it doesn't necessarily work um, but Willie had a huge understanding um, and yes I think the majority of players saw a different regime after Jack um, a less abrasive uh, regime uh, an easier going one by that I don't mean he was a soft touch because he was anything but a soft touch uh, but he had a different approach to the game. And um, mind you, having said that, the second, they often say second season, you know, your first season and lose a honeymoon, your second season's reality. And uh, that was so for Willie McFall because in his second season, um, it looked a knocking bet that Newcastle were going to be relegated. By the end of February, we were anchored bottom of the league, literally bottom of the league, and had taken one point out of the last nine matches that we were effectively down, and then we were rescued out of the blue by the G-Force, as I used to call it, which was two players, um, Gascoigne and Goddard, who came along and rescued Newcastle United and rescued Willie McFall. Um, how that came about was Gaza had actually been out for five months with a bad groin strain, uh, an awful long time to be out. Uh, and it shows you, for all his, his inexperience and his youth, how much Newcastle relied upon him because of how bad they were when he wasn't there. And then Paul Goddard, who was bought for £415,000, uh, suddenly blossomed once once um, Gaza came into midfield to pull the strings and to, to set things up for him suddenly he went on this incredible, incredible run where he scored in seven successive matches for Newcastle seven games on the bounce all tight games so there were key, key goals that he scored and um, and it changed the whole face of the Newcastle thing. Although Gaza was still Gaza. Gaza, even though he was young, I can remember watching a game at St James's Park and he was a young, bouncy, toby little, uh, wonderful little player. But I remember this day at St James's, he went through and he was shaking his hips and swaying and uh, jumping over the ball and he went past four people into the penalty area forced ever so slightly wide 
and all of a sudden he thinks I'm going to score a wonder goal now because this is what Gazza was about. And he tried to flick the ball up and chip and hit it in the far corner and it went over the bar. And he could have rolled it back and Goddard would have scored. And Newcastle at that stage weren't winning. And Goddard actually run across and, and shook um, uh, Gazza by the throat, warmly by the throat, literally by the throat, for saying, why the hell didn't you pass the ball? But that's what you had with with Gaza. You had to put up with a crazy moment because of what he would do in the, uh, the other wonderful moments. And we stayed up that season because of the efforts of the J-men, the Gaza and Gaza. We'll just stick with Gaza briefly. How did McFall kind of curtail his antics? I mean, we all know a very cheeky chap, even at that age. Had yeah. the relationship been struck up before McFall took the job? And what? Yeah, so how did yes. that work? Yeah, yeah. But uh, not that that matters with Gaza, uh, because he can't help himself. I mean, there's not a bad bone in Gaza. There wasn't a bad bone in Gaza's body. He never maliciously did anything wrong. He was just a slate short of a full roof. Um, and he couldn't help himself. Uh so he was hard to handle because he was all about pranks and he spent... I mean, there's days you'd, you, you'd want to give him a, a cuddle and take him home and there's other days you would want to smack him over the head because uh, he just didn't know when to stop acting a fool. Um, but you didn't want him to because you would have spoiled what was in the lad. I mean, there was the famous story in the in the World Cup when Bobby Robson was his manager in 1990. And Bobby suddenly looks out the window and it's two, because he can hear a noise outside, and it's two o'clock in the morning, and Gaza is out on the tennis court playing an American guest from the hotel tennis with floodlights. There were floodlit courts. And at two o'clock in the morning, before the semi-final of the World Cup, he's playing tennis outside in a pair of shorts. And... Fruitcake. He, I mean, it was it was um, it was Bobby that called called him daft as a bush, and and that is exactly what he was. But he knew how to. Willie knew how to give him his head, um, and he knew how to get the best out of him. And the interesting thing, just talking about Gaza and in Willie's effect, was that uh, Willie was manager from August '85 till October '88, and um, in the February of that. Last year, 1988, we were due down to play Wimbledon at Plough Lane, which was never a pretty sight because uh, Wimbledon played it like the, the dogs of war. Um, if you remember, they played it a, a, a bit like Jack Johnson played it. Get the ball up to a big centre forward who once upon a time was fashionable and, and play off that and, and we are organised thuggery. Um, that was the way they played the game. And it was not not, which was, as you can imagine, the ball came off on a stretcher. Um, it wasn't entertaining to watch. But it was the famous game, if you remember, when when um, Vinnie Jones squeezed uh, Gaza's unmentionables. And, um, and it won Pitcher of the Year and everything of that nature. This was during Willie's time. And how... Gaza had developed in Willie's time is underlined by that game because the, the coach at Wimbledon at that time was Don Howe, who was the wonderful, one of the great, great innovative coaches 
that this country's ever had. And um, you want to talk to Supermac about Don Hurl, who he had at Arsenal and with England. A wonderful coach. And he was coached to Wimbledon at that time. And they were so worried about Gaza, about the Newcastle match coming up, about what Gascoigne might do to them. The whole of that week in training, they took a 16-year-old kid out of their um, junior side and said, you're Gascoigne, you're Gascoigne in training every day this week. And they, uh, how told Vinnie Jones, your whole job on Saturday will be the man mark um, Gaza. And they trained all week with Vinnie Jones you couldn't put, you couldn't get a piece of paper between Vinnie Jones and the sixteen-year-old kid because he was that close to him. Come this Saturday, it was exactly like that, and um, Vinnie just walked everywhere with wherever. If Gascoigne had gone off to the toilet, Vinnie would have gone with him. Um, and I always remember you went to when Vinnie went to take a throw in when Wibbling got a throw in. He turned to Gascoigne and said, "Wait there, fat boy. I'll be back in a minute." took the throw in and went back and stood beside Gascoigne. And, of course, the famous photograph that was taken, it was a, the snapper who was a top, top uh, national newspaper um, football uh, photographer called Monte Fresco. And he got this... He decided that Vinnie Jones was Vinnie Jones and Gascoigne was the greatest thing since sliced bread. So I ain't going to follow the match. He must have known with Wimbledon and Newcastle he wouldn't miss a goal by doing this because it was an old note and uh, there wasn't any goals. But he just kept his eye on him and he clicked just at the right moment when Vinny got a hold of um, uh, Gaza and counted them. And, and the pitcher just went global and um, won every award that was possible uh, to win and established the the uh, persona of Vinnie Jones and also you know the fun of Paul Gascoigne. Gaza at the end of that game, by the way, after all that happened, he's when he got home, he sent a, a red rose to Vinnie Jones because he he felt Vinnie had fell in love with him the way he'd handled him, uh, and Vinnie Jones sent in retaliation sent a, uh, a toilet brush back to Gaza. In fact, they became the closest of friends and used to go fishing together and everything after that. But, I mean, that was the stupidity of Gaza and the fear that Gaza put into opposing sides at that time. Did McFall ever talk to you about that incident? Did he ever shy a little smile and say, uh, you, you oh, yeah, Gaza's made it now? I, I, absolutely. When Gaza wasn't there, of course, because... Uh, Gaza had a big enough ego in the nicest possible way without you actually telling him how good he was because then he wouldn't have been able to walk through the door, bless him. Um, but when he wasn't there, he used to say, hey, I can't sleep at nights for worrying about this kid, but I, I could sleep a damn sight less if I didn't have him um, because he, he does everything for us. And he, he realised that he was in the presence of a genius. He realised what this kid had in him more than the kid himself did. The most amazing thing with, with Gaza and, and, and Willie McFall went on about it several times to me, he said, what I can't believe, Gibbo, is the, the lack of fear for a young lad. He is just so convinced in his own ability and had every right to. It wasn't big-headed. He didn't come over as big-headed, but he knew how good he was. And he, he never had a fear that the game was going to be too big for him or that uh, 
he should be nervous before a game because he was never nervous. He had such a belief in his own ability. Um, he was hyper. Uh, you'd think he was brought up drinking cans of Pepsi-Cola all day long because he had a scrape off the ceiling most of the time. But, uh, you know, Willie was lucky. He was only manager for a short while, 85 to 88. But in that time, he'd lost Waddle, but he had Beardsley and he had Gascoigne in that team. And he was a... Yes, Beardsley left during that period. Uh, Gascoigne didn't but he was lucky to have those two. And, of course, the third thing that happened after he had the two seasons we've just talked about, um, at the end of the season where um, Goddard and Gazard kept Newcastle up, the second season, what happened? He went out and signed Mundina, of course, uh, which was quite a, a, an amazing moment, in not only in Newcastle's history, but in the Football League's history, because the Football League had been going for 100 years, and Mundina was the first Brazilian ever in the history of the Football League. Um, and when you think of all the foreign players now, well, as I say, Newcastle's got us a Brazilian centre-forward these days. Uh, but he was the first one, not at Newcastle, but in the whole of the of the Football League when he came to us in, uh, in 1988. Let's just talk about there some of the examples you've mentioned of players leaving. You've mentioned Beardsley, ah. Waddle. And then Gaza also eventually went. Yeah. But, I mean, in that summer that um, there was a lot of uproar, wasn't there, when Gaza went and then uh, McFall went on a big spreading spree, like Sir Dave Besson and what have you. But also yes. brought in other youngsters like uh, Michael O'Neill, current Stoke manager. I mean, he obviously had an eye for talent. Yeah, yeah, I think he did. I mean, uh, you can say that people like, Crescent, who was a, a, a super goalkeeper with Wimbledon and they, when they won the FA Cup, never quite did it up here. And, and Andy Thorne, we can say the same thing. Henry did a, a, a good job up here. And Neil, as you say, who become manager of Northern Ireland, of course, Willie's. Uh, and I think Willie worked with him behind the scenes at, at Northern Ireland. Um, yes, he did. Um, but, you know, when as a club, not Willie himself, but when as a club you have sold Waddle, Beardsley and Gascoigne, you're only going one way. It doesn't matter how clever you are in the transfer market, you're not going to be lucky enough to buy three players as good as they were. And we know they went on to be even greater and to win even more England caps and to win championships uh, um, with uh, Marseille for Waddle and Liverpool for Beardsley and Gaza went off and did what he did with Spurs and with Lazio. But you're not going to buy players and be lucky enough to get three as good as that. And when you think that there were three Geordie lads you sacrificed, uh, it was a horrendous kick in the teeth for, I mean, for Newcastle. You also sold Neil McDonald, Paul Goddard as well. Can you just explain what McFall's feeling was during that? So, I mean, I assume his hands were largely tied. It was the board's decision. Yes. It was kind yeah. of the club need the money. But yeah. what was McFall feeling during that summer? Because he obviously knew he was losing a lot of talent. I mean, Gaza aside, you know, Neil McDonald had done quite well, um, yeah. Paul Goddard too. And he knew that the fans 
weren't going to be happy, especially Gaza going. Correct. Oh, oh, absolutely. But I mean, his hands were tied. The lucky thing for the board, the lucky thing for the board was that Willie McFall was the diplomat that he was. He, he, he always did the right thing for the club. He never complained publicly about the hand he'd been ditched. You would get managers these days that, that would get on the hand legs and bleat with some justification, I might add. And um, you would get other managers who would take to their toes and just disappear and say, sorry, I ain't going to put up with this. Willie, not just because of his love for Newcastle, 22 years, but because he was a diplomat. He would not um, have a go at the club publicly. His frustration privately um, bubbled over. And he knew... That because of the loss of players of the calibre we've talked about, he knew he was putting his finger in the dam trying to block holes and that water would come pouring out somewhere else the minute he, he plugged the situation. I think the big gamble, the big gamble was Mirandina because he thought with all the things that were happening, he was going to bring in a Brazilian international centre forward we have this number nine history at, at Newcastle. Um, he'd been brought up in his side as a player that had win Davies when they won the European Cup and Malcolm McDonald when we got to the FA Cup final. If I can bring in a number nine who scores a pile of goals and is a Brazilian international, with all Brazil means with Pele and the whole history of the thing, this is the gamble that if this works this might be what saves my skin and saves Newcastle United and therefore that gamble was taken and the incredible thing as we know is that it was Supermac his old centre forward at Newcastle in the 74 Cup side that sold him Merendina having uh, first tried to sell Merendina to Graham Souness at Glasgow Rangers You mentioned there taking the gamble on Merendina and when Medina scored against Liverpool, 2-1 victory. You know, yeah. he runs straight over to McFall because the pressure then was really on McFall. Oh. He hadn't won in, in four games prior to that. Well, I don't yeah. think he'd won in six games, actually. Uh, I think he'd right. lost the That's opening right. game of the season, 4-0 to Everton, and then a 2-2 draw of Arsenal. Uh, Spurs, sorry, get that right. Right, North London club there. Spurs. Medina mm. scores, runs over, celebrates with McFall. Was the writing already on the wall there? Though? Was did was that just yeah. a, a stay of execution for another game? We, we know that we lost to Coventry, yeah. and that oh, was yeah. the end. I mean, yes, we we knew. I mean, we knew that it was the end for Willie before Liverpool result. That just delayed things, and it was unbelievable. Liverpool were the champions, and this was at Anfield, and Newcastle won two one. But I mean, you know, unbelievable things happen. I do recall that. Uh, a non-league side once beat Newcastle United. Was it Everford or somebody? Uh, these these freak results do happen, and it happened that day. And Miller did run across to Willie because uh, temporarily, uh, you know, who knows if we'd won against Coventry and then had gone on, maybe he escaped the noose. But the writing was very much on the wall, and Miller was a very controversial signing because he, he, he wasn't your typical Brazilian. 
He certainly didn't have a silky touch. There was no question about that, um, which most Brazilians have slow nature. Um, he didn't have that. He was blisteringly quick, and that was the greatest asset he had. Because he was quick, he frightened defenders, because defenders hate pace. Defenders hate facing pace. And he frightened defenders, and because they were fighting, he got chances. And he, when he first came, he scored quite a lot of goals, and he had a, a, a good relationship with um, Gaza. Um, it was a stupid relationship, because any relationship with Gaza was stupid. But uh, uh, and I mean, from day one, I remember, there was such a fuss when, when Mundina sang, both uh, Newcastle and throughout football. I mean, I flew down to London because I was a friend of Supermac and a friend of Willie McFalls. I flew down to London because Mundina was coming in from Rio de Janeiro. He changed plane in Paris over to Heathrow and then up to Newcastle. I joined them at Heathrow and flew up to Newcastle with Mundina up here uh, to see Willie McFall. And on the first day when Mundina went up to Benwell, and he couldn't speak English at all in those days, he went up to Benwell to meet the players and they're all standing there. And who was in the front of the queue, of course? It had to be... Uh, Gaza, because he put himself in the front of the queue. So he shakes hands extravagantly with uh, Mirren Dana and tells him that he'll make him a pile of goals and all that sort of thing. And then when Mirren moves on to the next guy, um, Gaza sneaked round the back, went all the way down to the bottom of the queue, stood at the bottom of the queue, and when, when Mirren got down there, introduced himself as Paul Gascoigne's twin, who also played for Newcastle United, and thought it was hysterically funny, where the, where Mirror didn't know what on earth he was talking about. But it was it was often said when they played together, that, and, and it was said mainly by me, that Newcastle United needed two footballs. They needed one for Gaza and one for Mirror because neither would give it to the other. They, they both wanted to be on the ball. I assume that McFall signed Meridina on the word of Supermark rather than... I haven't yes. actually seen Mourinho play. Well, mind you, Supermark only signed him on the word of a bloke called Don Packham, who, uh, who was the fellow that went in Supermark's pub and said, by the way, I know who you are. I've got these guys from Palmeiras who want to play in Europe. Can you do anything to help? Um, but, yes, but when he offered, he was the current number nine of Brazil at the time, you know. And if you're the Brazil centre-forward um, in the national side who had just played England at Wembley and that centre-forward was Mirandina, you thought you might be getting somebody that was a little bit tasty. And so you didn't think you were taking a great chance. And it wasn't a flop. He scored goals, but he wasn't as good as he might have been. Um, there, there's no question about that. But he was, he was, well, to be able to get a club, he was the Brazilian centre-forward and, and had played against England uh, in an international just before he came up here. But yes, if we're, if we're truthful, both the Supermax, MacDonald and McFall, were taking a chance, but they, they didn't think it was too much of a punt because he he, he was wearing the, the famous shirt. Mm. So McFall loses his job after the defeat to Coventry. How did he? How did he feel? What did he tell you about that? Obviously, he would have been devastated losing the job, but yeah, yeah, he, I, he was. He, I think yes, he was devastated mainly because it was the end of his relationship with Newcastle United, 
once you've climbed to the top of the mountain, like you get to the top of Everest, which is what he's done from being a player through all the coaching positions to manager, there's nowhere else for you to go. If you're a coach, you might be able to stay within the club on a change of manager. When you're a manager and you're sacked, that's you finished at the club. And after 22 years, uh, it was the end of Willie. And really, he almost retired, if you like. And he, he, he had a couple of, of small jobs. After that, he worked for Colrain, a club that was close to his heart. He did some scouting jobs for various people. I think he did some for for Norwich when um, Glenn Roder was manager. Um, and he famously went in poor soul and managed Guam, which is a, a little uh, island with a population of 150,000. That's yeah, all. I saw that. Aye, and he managed Guam. Can you believe that he can do it? Apart from the fact that it was nice to have a holiday there, and he got a three-year contract. I was going to say. Aye, I think he liked the swimming pool, and, and his missus did. Um, I mean, this little island was ranked 199th in the FIFA ratings out of 203 countries in the whole of the world, 199. And, <laughs> and he went as manager. Yeah, he had a... Newcastle um, losing his top players etc he went to play a World Cup match with Guam in Iran in Iran a World Cup qualifier and um, he lost 19-0 and uh, you know I said to him after I gave him a bell after I saw the result. I said, "Now, but you used to think that playing against Ronnie Radford was rough um, it, it Hereford, but nineteen nil. He said, "Give over, we're lucky to get nil." Um, it, it, you know, he, he turned up at the first training session with the national side, which was only one side, and there were seven players there. Yeah, when he first took over for his first training session with the national side, he had seven players. Um, and 19 nil. So I said, well, I think that was a good time to top up your suntan and get the hell out of there. Yeah, it's quite the start uh, <laughs> to a career. Um, I mean, in, in recent times, I don't know if you keep in touch with him. Does he yeah, still I hold do. the castle close to his heart? Well, oh, very much so, because I've had a lot to do with him over recent times because of the celebration of the anniversary, of course, of the first cup in... Willie, who uh, lives part of the time in Belfast and part of the time down south where his son uh, lives, um, is still a fanatical Newcastle supporter, so proud of his time at Newcastle, um, and appears up here from time to time because, of course, Bob Moncur has the Moncur suite at Newcastle and he hosts a table of Newcastle heroes at every home match or at least he did when they, the matches used to take place in front of crowds. And, of course, he, he, he gets people on that table uh, to be his guests, and he, they're always old teammates like Alan Foggin or Supermac, and sometimes it's Willie McFall, uh, Paddy Howard. So we do see Willie. He looks terrific still. He hasn't put on weight. He hasn't gone bald. He looks pretty much the guy that, uh, that spent 22 years in Newcastle. Uh, I've got an awful lot of time for him because he's got an awful lot of time for us uh, and for this club. Um, and it's pained him to see the club in the state it, it has been in of recent times. 
and he's just as excited as us at what might be about to happen at what he still considers his club. And it's amazing, you know, how much Newcastle get under the skin of people. How many people that aren't Geordies that consider Newcastle United their club? Uh, and you think of Bob Monker, you think of David Craig, you think of Willie McFall, um, and even to a, a certain extent, um, Frank Clark, although obviously Nottingham Forest is very much his club as well, because he, he's done everything there. He played for them, won the European Cup, uh, managed them, and was chairman. And so, you know, he's, he's got them as well. But there's an awful lot of people who, once they set foot in Newcastle United, might not be from the area, but for them, this is still the club and the talk about we in the same way as Geordie's when they talk about Newcastle United, use the word we. And uh, Willie McFall was one of them, and he will go down in the history of this club as one of the all-time great servants, both in the length of time he served here, the number of different jobs he had, and what he achieved as a player on the park with us. Because, as I say, we won things in his time, um, and we haven't been doing a lot of that recently. Well, that's where I was going to ask you to wrap up to finish off was yeah. just to rank them in terms of previous goalkeepers. We will include Martin Dubravka as a present goalkeeper as well. Yes. Um, yeah. Where where does Willie McFall rank in terms of the goalkeepers you you've seen? I think he's right up there in a handful of top top goalkeepers. I mean, the number one goalkeeper for me in Newcastle's history is Shea Given. Uh, Shea Given is the guy that I rank highest of all, on on the record books, we've got to say Jimmy Lawrence, although even I, 856, isn't old enough to have seen him play, considering it was the turn of the uh, 1900s when he was in goal, but he played for Youngstown. He's the only guy that probably stayed at the club as long as, as Willie did, but he, he was only a player. He didn't go on to coach and manage. But, I mean, he's up there. You would go Fairbrother and Simpson out of the um, Jackie Milburn FA Cup sides, um, and 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 Willie, and because when we look back, we haven't been well off for goalkeepers at Newcastle United over the years. We haven't had a lot of, of, of great, great goalkeepers. There was long periods when what we needed was a good goalkeeper, um, and Willie McFall, I think, is very underrated. Uh, perhaps doesn't deserve, uh, perhaps deserves more of a ranking within the history than he's got. Um, but 22 years manager and player, and to have played for 10 years uh, first team in over 300 odd games, you don't do that if you're a bad keeper. And he didn't have the physical attributes that made it natural. Uh, but an awful lot of time from and. Um, We've got to be truthful, he's the last goalkeeper to win anything still at Newcastle United. The 1969 Fairs Cup side, they're the last ones. So he's the last Newcastle United goalkeeper to win a trophy was Willie McFall. There we have it. Well, John, we do appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed a little trip down memory lane. Keep safe, keep well, and we look forward to the next episode of Give Us Corner. God bless. Take care, mate. Bye.